Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I am delighted and indeed honoured to be speaking with the, I think, hugely talented artist and political activist, Anthony Frieda. And let me just share this quote by Ara Hawkins, quote, Anthony Frieda's art is a flower in the barrel of a shotgun, but a bullet in the mouth of politics. He is fearless and fierce, and years from now, when we look back on this moment in history, his art will be an accurate snapshot, a picture of what we should never forget, lest history repeat itself, unquote. Anthony Frieda is based in Long Island and works as an editorial illustrator, visual political activist, and as part of the adjunct faculty of the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. He has many prestigious clients in the mainstream such as Time, The New Yorker, Rolling Stone, Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and he has earned something of a reputation as the go-to artist for many alternative news websites and publications such as Code Pink, Activist Post, Washington's Blog, Global Research, Cindy Sheehan's The Soapbox, and Gerald Salenti's The Trends Journal. And now he joins us today, I'm very pleased to say. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thank you, Julian. Great to be here. It's great to have you on. Thank you for agreeing to come on The Mind Renewed. And I have, of course, our mutual friend John Masseria to thank for putting us in touch. And, of course, it was through John that I became aware of your work, although no doubt I will have I will have seen your work on various websites and, and things without even knowing that it was by you. But uh, I guess it was really when I saw John's film of you submitting your piece called Questions, a 9-11 Truth Questioning artwork, and you, you uh, submitted that to the 9-11 Memorial Museum in New York. That I, That's when I really became aware of your work, and I'll certainly want to ask you about that experience uh, in a few minutes as we get going. Um, but let's start with you. How is it that you came to be a visual artist? Is that something that you always wanted to be from your childhood, or did your sort of life experience lead you in that direction, perhaps unexpectedly? Well, I think we all tend to um, gravitate towards our strengths, and uh, it was something that I had a natural affinity towards, mm-hmm. and um, something I was good at as a child was always the kid who was the best um, kid in our class, you know. So I figured, why fight nature and why <laughs> go against the grain? I mean, just this is something that, and, and I enjoyed it tremendously, and I seem to have a, a natural talent for it, so I just... Um, went along with that flow and tried not to fight against it. Mm. And then you studied it through into college. And uh, when you came out of college, I understand that you went into the business world. Is that right? Yes. I went to Pratt in Brooklyn and um, I uh, started trying to make it as an artist. And I realized I was out of my depth and uh, I really didn't have enough wisdom or experience to make a career as an artist. So I I started working for an advertising art studio just to kind of learn the business through in the trenches. You know, you were in the trenches. It was it was a grueling 90 hour weeks we would work and yeah, very, very little pay and uh, very demanding. And but it was great because it really forged you as an artist, as an applied artist, learning that you're going to have deadlines, you're going to have responsibilities, you're going to have uh, you have to make concessions as an artist. Uh, you can't be a perfectionist. You, this, is, this is a commercial product you're producing, and it has to be within the parameters and the satisfaction of the client uh, more than your own personal satisfaction. It was rigorous, but it was, uh, it was a great training ground for me. I learned more there than I did four years of Pratt, I think. And I went into it 
semi-reluctantly because, I mean, I wanted to make a living as an artist. I didn't want to be broke, you know, the classic starving artist scenario. And uh, I also wanted to justify the fact that, you know, we had spent a significant amount of money (laughs) on my education. So I went into advertising just to prove that this was a valid choice um, practically in in the real world. But you became increasingly disenchanted with that situation, didn't you? Uh, Do you want to tell us why? I became disenchanted because we we were we, we made a lot of money, which was you know you're a young man, uh, money has its uh, obvious um, pleasures involved with it, um, but I felt like something was missing, and I wanted to do something greater with my art. I mean, I was involved with I don't know if you remember the the infamous Joe Campbell campaign, where we were drawing cartoons to sell cigarettes to a, what was determined later to be a, a market of children. So that was one of the things where I realized, you know, this is not selling cigarettes to kids, not what I want to do with my life. Yeah, absolutely. You go into clients where you just, you know, it's probably not ethically or morally the best place you want to be, but you get sucked in because of financial compensation and it's it's a business. And um, next thing you know, you're pimping alcohol and cigarettes to kids. And uh, I didn't want to do that. So. Yeah. So, I mean, what what was it that actually, I mean, obviously you had that feeling of being un- unhappy about what you were being sucked into there, but was there, was there any particular thing that made you think, look, I've really got to move in a political direction? I've always been interested in politics. The very first images I created when I was a child were, were politically uh, charged images. Yeah. So I, I always had that inclination. I wanted to get back into that and uh, I, I strayed away from it because of of economic concerns, and then I realized, you know what, I'm going to stop caring about making a living, and I'm caring about, uh, start caring about making a life and making work that I'm proud of. So I just left it all behind. I started from square one to recreate myself as a political artist, fine artist, and illustrator. That's what I dedicated myself to, and I haven't looked back. Mm-hmm. And I guess that involved you in a lot of work in a self-promotion way in order to get your illustrations recognized and get enough money to live on. Yes. You know, so unfortunately, self-promotion is a big part of this business and it's kind of you feel dirty about it sometimes. But, uh, you know, look at me, look at me. You're always it's but it's, it's essential part of of the business. And uh, unfortunately, yeah. it's just it's just the nature of it. And um, hopefully you're doing it. Like I said, when you're doing it. Just for money, there's there's a part of it that uh, I think comes back to you and makes you hate part of yourself. But when if you're doing it like what I'm trying to do now, sell ideas and sell these ideas of peace and freedom and liberty, then I don't feel uh, guilty about it or narcissistic about it. I feel like there's a greater there's a means to an end. And you also have now this position at the institute. How, how long have you been teaching there? I just started. I taught my first semester. It went great. Um, yeah. It was very re- rewarding, and I think the students really got a lot out of it. Um, mm. The benefit of my, you know, long <laughs> career. Yeah. Uh, do they understand what you're doing? Do they, do they perhaps even want to go the way that you have gone? Some of them do. Yeah. Some of them are. Uh, you know, it, there's 26 students in the class, so they all have their own particular dreams and. Mm aspirations and I try to foster each one of them. I don't I don't want to make little Anthony Frieda's, but at the same time I do want them to be politically aware and I want them to think of ideas greater than just their own career, you know. I mean that to me is is, is the goal of an artist to think of something that you can present to the world that enhances ideas or enhances um people's understanding of the world. 
and makes them look at things in a different way than they're accustomed to, uh, makes them think. So I try to foster that and I try to um, encourage them not to them to follow whatever their passion is. I mean, what are they concerned about? What do they think is important? Don't just try to follow me. These are my passions. But because the artwork will always be better when it's your passion. You know, somebody who loves animals, when they paint animals, you can tell, a discerning eye can tell that that person loves animals. That love goes into the drawing as opposed to somebody who might hate animals and if they draw an animal, that passion and that, and that sensitivity and that um, reverence will not be there. And, and it's evident in the final product. In everything we do in life, but especially in the visual arts, it's, it's very obvious. Yeah. It makes total sense if you're committed to something, then you just naturally do that little bit extra that you wouldn't bother to do if you weren't really interested in it and invested in, in what you're doing. I totally get that, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say there about teaching other people and you're encouraging them to follow their own path. I want to sort of contrast that with the quote from one of your interviews where you said that um, if you could be given the chance, you would, let me quote here, recreate an old schoolroom and spend a year drawing my own history lesson on the blackboards with white colored pencil. And I was thinking about that and I'm wondering why did you put it like that? What was it in your past that caused you to think in that way? Well, there's, there's you know, there, I think of that line by, um, Paul Simon, when I think back of all the I learned in high school, it's a wonder I can think at all. <laughs> it's such a great line, and it's so true. I mean, we were given so much disinformation that you almost have to start from square one to really consider and understand. You know, I'm looking at history from the United States perspective because I think U.S. history, obviously, in the last hundred years has influenced the, the world history, but um, I'm U.S. centric just because I'm American, and 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 also because it's just it's just too daunting to try to understand everything yeah. about world history. It's, it's mind-boggling. So uh, anyway, focus on U.S. history and what I was taught about U.S. history as a contrast to what real historians and real investigative journalists and people who were uh, digging for the truth um, rather than regurgitating propaganda have revealed and presented to the world and that to me is so fascinating and that to me is and the fact that all this information is out there and there is a community of people online that are a growing community that are aware of and understand these alternative narratives that should be the official narrative but um it's, it's always a fight we have to fight for truth and the best way to do it is to educate people and give them valid useful information that they can't challenge, you know, that that will open their minds up to other possibilities other than the dogma and that they've been mm. brought up on. And I think your artworks do that brilliantly, actually. They they do open up the consciousness because you use, I mean, I'm going to ask you about all these techniques that you use uh, where you juxtapose images in such a way as to um, impact people's consciousnesses such that they have to question what they've been taught and how they think about the world. It's a worldview kind of clash that's going on there. Um, but just before we go away from this education thing, is that what was behind, to some extent, that piece that you created where you have a teacher, a kind of two-headed teacher in front of a black board and she's pointing to a gun on one hand and she's pointing to a drone on the other hand and the drone is good violence and the gun is bad violence i mean is that is there something of that criticism of your own educational experience in that absolutely it's a criticism of of my education and the, the entire system and the mainstream media 
and the establishment's focus, establishment's hypocrisy. I mean, I'm always, everything I do is about exposing hypocrisy really in the end because it's, I mean, there's hypocrisy everywhere and it's hidden in plain sight. It's so obvious if you, if you try to be objective and try to be rational about these things and not emotional, you see it's everywhere. There's hypocrisy on the right, on the left, from the establishment. I mean, it's just, it's astonishing. And nobody... People hate being called a hypocrite, by the way, hard <laughs> way. And, uh, well, I know because I've been called a hypocrite as well. I don't agree with that, but that's what I've been called it, and it does hurt, of course. Yeah. yeah. I don't think you're a hypocrite, but I do think the people – I mean, you know, Obama is one of the biggest arms dealers in the United – in history. And uh, he's brokered more uh, arms deals than any Republican or Democratic administration in the last 70 years. So if he's interested in controlling the sale of arms, maybe he should start with self-control. So these are the these are the things I try to point out. I think when you get right to the heart of, of you figure out a clever way to point out somebody's hypocrisy, and it's you know you try to do it with humor because um, what Oscar Wilde say if uh, you tell people the truth you better make them laugh or they'll hate you or they'll kill you. I think he said so. <laughs> so you know you have to temper these messages. If you just tell people, listen, you're an idiot and you're a hypocrite, nobody's going to listen to you, and rightly so. You know you have to be civil about mm. these things. So your technique there, one of those things, is humour, and it comes out in a, a lot of your pieces. A kind of, I suppose, necessarily a kind of black humour very often because of the, the subject matters you're dealing with. Uh, but one of the things that you mentioned in – you gave a lecture last year at Liberty Fest. Uh, this was also filmed by John Masseria, and it, it came out as the film The Thought Crimes of Anthony Frieda. And you, you say in that lecture that you use archetypal images a lot, um, such as the hero and the villain and other images that are often exploited by the cultural manipulators of the age to you know to reinforce false narratives and you you turn that on its head you use those to sort of get back at them so i mean could you summarize how you tend to use images to fight back yeah well one of the classic techniques of um of an illustrator is to use to use popular term mashup you take two disparate ideas and you combine them into a new and interesting and hopefully compelling idea and that juxtaposition is what excites the viewer. Mm. You know, there's a fine line. You, you want to be novel and interesting, but at the same time, too much novelty will disturb the viewer and too little novelty will bore the viewer. So mm. you have to find that sweet spot where the juxtaposition is just funny enough or just interesting enough or just novel enough to be compelling and, uh, like I say, not familiar enough that it's it's just boring. So it's it's a challenge because if you go too far, people will be turned off by it. If you're too provocative, people will resent it. It's a it's a balance. But yes, juxtaposition or matching up disparate ideas is, is a classic and really at the heart of everything I do. Yeah, I can see that is obviously a very tricky thing to do. And I suppose this is one of the paradoxes in it that I should think a lot of people would obviously be impressed by the image. But if they sort of think about it for a moment beyond that in terms of technique, might think. Yeah, but, you know, that's just one image and another image. There can't have been a lot of thought gone behind that. But I very much suspect that it takes quite a long time to make that judgment, to find the right image to go with the other image, etc. I should imagine that's quite a headache at times. Well, it's interesting. I, I, I think it's just the way certain people's minds work. Uh, I think my mind has always worked in those terms. I look back at the work I did when I was a child and I was making these juxtapositions. It's just something I've always done. I, I'm not sure why. It's just brain chemistry or um, just <laughs> it just happens to be the way I think. 
You certainly have a, a tremendous skill for it. I mean, you have these various, as I said, some of these archetypes and these these major images that people are familiar with. You know, and you have the uh, Statue of Liberty you use a lot, you use Capitol Hill, um, Uncle Sam <laughs> appears all over the place. And uh, you have, of course, Obama and Osama bin Laden. Uh, th- these are recurring images, are they not, in, in your work? And, um, I mean, one that you mentioned it in that lecture that a lot of people have reacted to particularly, and I reacted in the same kind of way as that. I don't know what it's called, but the one where you have the, the plinth where the Statue of Liberty should stand. And, of course, you've removed that. And you have this iconic image of a, a naked Vietnamese girl running down the road away from the napalm on the plinth. You know, it just strikes you, you know, the hairs on the back of your neck stand on end. Do you find that most people do react in the way that you intend when they see images like that? Well, that, that's obviously meant to, not incite, but to provoke people to think about things in, in a more, uh, in a moral fashion. You know, this whole idea that, we're, that we have the moral high ground because we're America, I mean, that's just, that's so easily debunked and, and i'm not anti-american i just i think we could be, do better i mean really that's all i'm saying we can do better than the vietnam war we could do better than the iraq war yeah. and the reason we don't is because we're manipulated we're good people americans are good people they're manipulated by bad people they're manipulated by a corrupt media and and a, and a military industrial complex that uh, is in the business of fomenting hatred and xenophobia and tribalism and endless warfare. I mean, that's their business. When a political establishment and a media are working concert to promote these ideas, it's pretty easy to do. And they've done it over and over again. And the result is millions of dead people and suffering people all over the world. So my critics who simply dismiss me as being anti-American, I think are missing the point. I'm pro-America. I'm pro uh, the good forces of America, I think, should be what we promote. And I think by exposing really this cabal of corrupt, immoral elites who have usurped the American policy for their own nefarious ends, uh, I need to be exposed. And that's what I'm doing. Yes, I fully understand. As I was saying, actually, to John recently, the British establishment over here is trying to do a similar kind of thing with their meme called British Values. And it boils down to if you're against what the government is doing, particularly in foreign policy, then you're held to be against British values. I mean, it's really Orwellian speak. But of course, you can be, as I am, you know, very keen about my country and love my country. But if I criticise, then I'm somehow against British values. It's, it's really uh, obnoxious. And, and as you say, it needs to be exposed, which was what I and other people like me try to do. So, you know, we're very much on the same page as you. Um, having touched on particular works of art there, and I'll come back to a number more, actually, which impressed me, of course, the one which we have to talk about is questions, which was the subject of that film that that John made called Behind Truth Art and I'm really interested to understand how you actually felt when you were meeting the curators of the US National September 11th Museum and you were speaking to them and I mean they they seem to treat you quite well but I'm wondering how you actually felt uh, were you sort of hot under the collar? (laughs) Well you know I I witnessed 9-11 happen from my roof in Manhattan I lived lived there at the time and uh, so it was a very emotional personal experience for me and I had this this underlying unease about it and personal attachment to it and passion about it that has fueled honestly it's fueled a lot of the work I've done um, political artwork is just on a visceral level um, like I want to use my art to get back or it's almost an act of revenge 
for a, an unseemly crime against humanity and to get to the truth. Uh, so when I was in a museum, it, it was a very strange experience because these people, everyone had a copy of the 9-11 Commission Report on their desk as if it was a Bible. And this is a shrine. This is almost a temple to the official narrative. And what I was there to do was to tell them, listen, before you carve this official narrative into stone, literally, which is what they're doing there, maybe you should find out that most of what it says in this book isn't even true. It was written before 9-11 even happened. It's a fairy tale. You didn't actually say that to them. I did say that. I, said, well, I, I, did no, say, no. I did say we should find out what happens before you wedge this into stone. I did say that. That's uh-huh. on the record. Uh-huh. But that's what I was thinking the whole time I was there. Try to get them to question sure. the foundation of what that whole building is built upon. Your being there and doing what you were doing was, in the broadest sense, saying that to them at every moment that you were there. Um, what was interesting is that in the Newsweek piece that was written about that event, um, you are recorded as saying that your initial intention when, when you were given this commission was actually to mock, very gently, but to mock the 9-11 truth movement. Uh, but then you say that you became persuaded that actually there, there really was something of substance here. Were there particular evidences that changed your mind on this? Uh, there's, there's, there's just so many smoking guns. And I'm not an expert on 9-11 truth, but I listen to people who are, who are experts. People like Steve Pachenik, one of the founders of Delta Force, uh, one of the guys who was at the um, Camp David Accords. I mean, he outlines why it's, it was a false flag operation, and he names names, and he uh, outlines the whole operation. And there's many other people who were pilots and scientists and architects and engineers and people who are experts, which I am not, but they are. And people in intelligence agencies from all over the world, from German intelligence, Japanese intelligence, and Italian intelligence. And these people understand how these operations work. And they know the official story was was And they know the truth. Everybody in the intelligence community knows that was it was all just uh, a fairy tale. Um, what really happened, I don't think we'll ever know. I don't think anybody will know exactly what happened that day. And I'm not saying I have the only answers or I know. What I'm saying is people, if you do research, you will find very clearly and without a doubt that the official story is a lie. So I say do your own research. You know, look at people. Um, my friend John Gold, G-O-L-D, he does uh, – he's been dedicating his life to this um, – and he's done some great research and architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth. And there's a lot of great people that are, are doing the work that I think is um, – they're doing God's work because they are constantly mocked and they're undermined and they're lied about. And they're brave people because they're doing something that's incredibly unpopular. And in the face of that unpopularity, they press on and they're, because they're concerned about truth. They're not concerned about being popular. Absolutely. Or was it actually through researching for that artwork that you encountered this information then? You, you hadn't encountered much of it before? I hadn't. I was subject to the mainstream narrative. Anybody who questioned any part of the story was tinfoil hat wearing, you know, lunatic yeah. who hates America and loves yeah. Osama bin Laden. And I mean, that was it. That was the official line. Um, that's what I was inculcated with. And these ideas were hostile to me. These ideas that that, that story wasn't true or that maybe there was some evidence of a stand down or evidence of you know why was there drills going on the same day and why were the why weren't these planes decepted when people 
for decades have been able to intercept planes and drills. That's what they do all day for a living. How do you let a plane crash into the Pentagon, the most secure building on Earth? I mean, none of these things make sense. We start thinking about logically, you know, we have a trillion dollar military and the one building where the entire world knows the seat of this military is easily crashed into with a plane. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Nothing made sense that day. So then you start thinking about it and start researching why didn't everything make sense that day? And you're so emotional what happens that you just take in the official story um, without thinking about it, without questioning it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I got this assignment from the Village Voice um, called Fakes on a Plane. And it was a story about these documentary filmmakers who were questioning the official narrative. And I started, as my research, to watch their films, Loose Change. And and I listened to a lot of other people. At that time, there was a C-SPAN presentation where they had Stephen Jones and they had um, Bob Bowman. It was a lot of military people, and it was on C-SPAN. Yeah, I think I recall that. Was was David Ray Griffin involved in that as well? I think he might have been, yeah. So I watched yeah. that, and um, these are all credible people. These are all really smart people, and and I listened to them. I went in thinking that the only people who questioned this were kooks, and I watched these guys. These guys are not kooks. You know, these guys are smart people. They're really smart. Why would they Why would they put their reputation online knowing they're going to be called a kook? Mm. Why would they stick their neck out like that? There must be some to it. What are they getting? They're not getting paid for it. They're not, it's not exactly. like uh, they're getting showered with adoration. They're getting showered with ridicule. So why would you put yourself out there, expose mm-hmm. yourself to that kind of ridicule unless there's something there? It made, it made no sense. You risk your reputation and people's reputations are ruined. Some people's lives are ruined. So, you, you know, you need, when somebody puts their entire reputation, their life on the line, and they have a record of being a, a consistent, reliable, responsible professional – you need to listen to that person. Absolutely. And I think, as you you know, you were saying before, it's not a case of saying, well, I listen to that person and believe that their particular version of it is absolutely correct. It is the very fact that you have such a substantial number of people who do know what they're talking about, basically saying we cannot accept the official position. It's that that should really tip people off if they're bothered to look into it at all to the realisation that we just cannot accept what's there and we have to do our, our own research, which I think your obviously your, your work of art does. And let, let me just ask you if I could just drag this down the page that I can see your artwork here. So this is, it is actually called Questions, isn't it? That is the title. Yes, and that was um, deliberate because, like I say, it's not called Answers. I don't have answers, no. but I have a lot of yeah. questions. It's interesting the, what you've done with it because you haven't actually just restricted it to specifically 9-11 issues. You've gone slightly broader than that. Now, I can imagine that some people might say that by going broader, and for example, you have the pyramid with the, the eye on top. So you've brought in some of these icons from these what we might call the broader truth movement. Some people might say, oh, well, you know, you're perhaps confusing matters by doing that. I'm not saying that. I'm just wondering if you could explain why you have brought in some of these broader images. Because I think to understand 9-11, you have to understand it in a historical context. Until that night, I've never heard of Operation Northwoods. And I I researched it, and um, you, you find out that there were plans approved by the Joint Chiefs of Staff to do something very similar to happen on 9-11 uh, during you know the Cuban Missile Crisis era. So, And you, you start to learn, like I say, the real U.S. history. That's why, again, like I presented the thing in a in a didactic manner. It's it's, just, it's, the, it's the the blackboard. It's the classroom. So yeah, that's, that's right. So it's the teaching situation that you wish you'd had when, to to learn that bit about history that you were denied. Yes, everything goes back to that. I mean, as I really think, that's the problem. People, very smart people, come up with con- bad conclusions, erroneous conclusions, because they've been given bad information. 
It's not that they're stupid. If you're given bad information and you're not exposed to better information, you're going to consistently make conclusions like, yes, Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. We need to start a war. He's going to kill us all. The mushroom clouds are coming. If you're given bad information Mm -hmm. that, yes, we're attacked in Vietnam and they started a war with us in the Gulf of Tonkin, we need to go there and kill them all. All the dominoes are going to fall. If if you're consistently given bad information, then you're going to consistently make bad conclusions. Obvious. It's an obvious point, but it needs to be said over and over again. Yes, uh, it is a kind of obvious point, but actually one can reflect on it a little further. I think it's um, it's kind of obvious, but there's a deeper point to it, isn't there? Because, you know, people often talk about cognitive dissonance. When you have information that goes against your worldview, then you tend to sort of push that away. Oh, you know, I have a set worldview. I've been taught such and such is true. And in a way, there's a kind of basis of rationality to this position. We, you know, we must have a worldview. We have to take certain things for granted in order to exist in this world. But there comes a point where enough information that's contrary to your worldview comes across your consciousness where I think it actually becomes irrational to push that information away. There comes a point where there's so much information or so many questions that challenge the worldview that you've actually got to stand back and say, well, look, perhaps there's something wrong about the basic things I believe and I've been taught. So I personally don't, you know, criticize everybody I meet who's not interested in these things. I just think, well, maybe they've not gone far enough down that road. They've not encountered enough contrary information to change. So I'm agreeing with you that, uh, you know, we need to be gentle with people in that sense, but present them with information, which I think you do here. Um, I love the way that you have a frame within a frame, the back of a person's head in the inner frame, looking at the Twin Towers burning there. And above him, and in the larger frame, is all this other information that you have scattered around the canvas, and he can't see any of that. And it's as if you're inviting us as the audience to say, I can see the back of my own head and I'm seeing myself there as somebody who can just see the picture that's presented to me on the mainstream media. But if I could just stand back, I can see the bigger picture and good heavens, this is all challenging my worldview that is impressed upon me by the media. And a lot of it is false. I love the way it challenges your perception. I mean, you actually do that in the picture. It's a great idea. Oh, thanks. That's what I was trying to do. There's layers of reality, and um, mm. the media will focus our attention to a little box. You know, it's like Plato's allegory of the cave, where the shadows on the wall are their definition of reality, but there's the real reality has nothing to do with that. So it's all about looking beyond those shadows and trying to understand the bigger picture. And uh, it's just human nature. People don't like to be challenged because they take it as an insult to their own intellect. You know, it's that old saying, it's easier to fool someone and to convince them they've been fooled. That's a very daunting challenge because you have to be delicate about it and you have to do with compassion and understand it. Listen, I was once a believer in, in every official narrative. I believed everything they told me. So there has to be an awakening process, an awakening of consciousness, an awakening of awareness of the information to understand. You have to suspend belief in all propaganda to really understand to what degree you are complicit in these evil agendas that are happening all over the world. And as I said, I think you do that really well. If you just presented all these images and you hadn't invited us into the picture I think it wouldn't have worked, but because you do, gently invite us to see the back of our own heads. You know, that's not me looking at that. I think it does. It works really well. Um, as I said before, I think you were treated pretty well by the curators. I mean, obviously, I'm just looking at the film. Is that what how you felt about it? That the film accurately records that? 
they were very nice and they were um, very gracious. Uh, they didn't really want us to film there, but uh, right. John just put a camera on the table and God bless him, he just filmed the whole thing. Even though I just watched him say that you're not allowed to have a camera in here. <laughs> and then after the fact, they called us and threatened us and said, you're not allowed to put that out or there's going to be legal ramifications. So they got a little testy after the fact, but the female curators were very gracious. And uh, at the, the end of the whole presentation, they uh, said, you know, thank you so much for coming. Of course, we don't agree with anything you've said, but uh, <laughs> we wanted to give you <laughs> right. an opportunity to, to present your case. So they were very gracious. Good. So they didn't call you a conspiracy theorist then? No, that was everybody online once they came out you know, <laughs> viciously. <laughs> yeah. Is that actually on display then, or have they put it in a basement somewhere? Well, you know, some people say they put it, you know, like in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where there's a big warehouse somewhere where they hide everything. <laughs> they hid it there. <laughs> Uh, it's supposedly going to be on a rotating, you know, on display on a rotating basis. That was part of the deal I made with them. I said, you know, yeah, yeah we have it in writing. This is going to be part of a rotating show that they have a large collection, so they bring out pieces um, uh, intermittently. Right. And it was supposed to also be part of a uh, traveling show where the museum travels to different countries and different museums. So that was the deal, but I have yet to hear from them they said they were going to contact me when it was on display and mm. hasn't happened yet mm. yeah i can imagine there's somebody there gritting their teeth thinking oh but i don't have to put this out <laughs> <laughs> i might lose my job yeah it's great though that you managed to get that into the collection is that actually the only as it were truth you know what i mean by that you know truth movement i don't like the term actually but how else do we refer to these things piece of art that's actually in the collection yeah i don't like those labels either that's why they asked me Are you a truth er and it's, yeah. i refuse to be defined by labels you know uh, let's, let's put it this way do you know of other pieces of art in that collection that question in a similar kind of way not in a similar way but i think there are other pieces um it's, it's not easy to find them uh, or to get information about them but i think there are but like I said, I don't have specifics, and I don't, and I'm pretty sure there's nothing similar to what I have done. Well, I'd like to ask you just a couple of questions, really, about how you go about doing your art. From what I've gleaned, you seem to live now in uh, ideal circumstances to do art. At least that's that's how I would would think of it. Um, you seem to be away from the city and in quiet circumstances. Do you find that a, a great situation for your artwork? I do. The house I live in now was a convent at one point, mm-hmm. and it's surrounded by beautiful grounds, so it, it's a great place to foster contemplation. And uh, I also, you know, I go into the city when I'm teaching, so I'm 60 miles from New York, so it's a nice balance from the chaos and the energy of the city to the, the peace uh, and tranquility of the country. So I have the best of both worlds, and I can get stimulated and then have then have an opportunity to meditate on on the stimulation. And when you are commuting backwards and forwards to your your teaching appointments, do you take a sketchbook and jot down ideas, or, or have this kind of uh, romantic idea, you know, of the, of the of the artist always carrying this this means of jotting down the spontaneous ideas? I mean, is, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's true. It's cliche, but it's true. I actually tell my students always have a sketchbook on you because even when you're sleeping, sometimes your best ideas come in dreams, and uh, you might. Just wake up and jot something down because you'll forget it the next morning. Because you're always, as an artist, we're always processing and thinking of ideas, thinking of ways to translate uh, the information we receive during the day into something that's visually compelling. At least that's what I'm doing. So sometimes that, that process happens 
subconsciously while I'm dreaming. You know, it's a Jungian thing with these, yeah. these this yeah. symbology, this language, uh, the the collective unconscious is available to you, and these symbols historically, um, this iconography that's available to you combines itself in mysterious and interesting ways. And you use all sorts of different techniques, don't you? The things that have been written about you, you use found objects, different surfaces, collage, drawing. Do you use uh, oil painting? Sometimes I use paint. Um, I've gotten away from paint, but I like... Hmm. I started working for a period on, um, again, getting back to the didactic nature of my work, where I work on old 19th century school slates. So I collect these old school slates and school desks and I work on them um, the, the, I mean, the energy of these old objects and the patina and the, the beauty and it that's come from just existing for 150 years the wood is beautifully the oil from the children's hand has aged the wood and, and, and given it a, a patina and the slate itself there's still faint evidence of the marks that these children wrote back in a schoolroom. And that, to me, is, is so powerful. And you can feel it when you hold this object. So I want to take these objects that already have a power and give them uh, another layer of meaning. So, yeah, I love working with old objects. And uh, and digitally, you know, you can do that, too. You can scan the object and work on it digitally. Mm. But, uh, but you don't start digitally. You always start in a traditional way, do you? I always try to start with a traditional um, substrate and scan that and then build upon it in layers and the reason why I asked about oil painting, because it, it dovetails into what you were saying about objects that already exist and then refashioning them, finding a new purpose for them, is I mean, what your piece, again, I don't know the title, where you have, I think it's a reworking of um, a painting by Edward Hopper called Morning Sun? Yes. Ah, could you want to tell us about that? Because I find that really striking. I call that the clash of civilizations. You know, this is obviously, it's a woman um, in a burqa sitting on a bed in this Edward Hopper painting, uh, and she's semi-reclining, looking out a window, and there's a drone in the sky. And that's this clash of civilization that is happening all around us, and it's really the defining um, moment of our times, trying to encapsulate that in one image. I use this classic American painter as a a foundation for that, um, because that's such a powerful image. Yes, I mean, I, I recognized the image. I didn't actually know who it was by, but immediately when I saw it, I thought, I'm sure I've seen that picture before, but it obviously it's yeah. been transformed. And so I very quickly found out and I thought, oh, yeah, that's exactly what you've done there. You've taken a, you know, a classic picture and you've changed the function of it really effectively. Well, thanks. And that's, I mean, that's another big part of our work, you know, juxtapositions and this parody. Parody is another huge tool for the artist. And I'm constantly parodying images that people are aware of and people have associations with because... People gravitate to those images, and they understand those images. On they understand them on an emotional level, an intellectual level, an artistic level. So, and they have a certain understanding. When you can take that image and give it a new meaning, or flop the meaning on its head, it, it resonates with the viewer, and it's just a great tool. So, I, I use parody a lot. You do, and one of the parodies I love particularly is the one where you have the Democrat donkey and the Republican elephant, and their backsides turn to each other with the same human face on each backside, and um, they're talking hot air to each other, to put it politely. Um, Where did that idea come from? It it works really well, but it's kind of out there, isn't it? Yeah, well, they're all talking aren't they? And it's... (laughs) And... um, it's just I really think partisanship is tribalism. I think it's uh, anathema to objectivity. 
And I think that it, by its nature, polarizes people and it's an intractable problem that I, I don't know how to get around it because like I say hypocrisy is hidden in plain sight. Democrats blame every problem in the world of Republicans and vice versa and it's very hard to convince them of anything that's even close to the idea that they're both you know what I mean mm-hmm. they're not buying it. So I don't know. Um look up ask you about another couple of pieces uh, before we close. Great. Good. Um, perhaps my very favourite piece of your artworks that I've actually seen is The Magic Bullet. And I think that's really very clever, where you have uh, JFK, MLK, and I think it's RFK. Is, is that, have I got those three right? Yes, <laughs> uh, yes. And they're all, they're all in this line, and they're all being taken out with a single bullet. I mean, I, I just think that works on so many levels. I think that's wonderful. Uh, do you want to tell us the inspiration for that? Well, again, it's a challenging the official narrative. You know, you start to look into these because you're you're taught from the time you're born in, in America that people who question um, the lone gunman theory of JFK or people who question what happened to MLK or to RFK and Sir and Sirhan that these people are just crazy people. You know, of course, it's just they were all just lone nut jobs who decided to kill some of the most powerful people in the world, and they didn't have any affiliation with any organizations. They weren't attached to any intelligence agencies. There was no greater plot by anyone. It was just one crazy guy with a gun. It's always just one crazy guy who happens to take out uh, conveniently some of the most powerful people in the world. And isn't that interesting how someone with no power becomes the mover of history? And I don't buy it. And when you start to look into these situations, you realize it wasn't one crazy person who changed history. It was much more complicated than that. And um, I think there's a common thread through those assassinations that happened in the 60s. And I think it's been documented. And I think that if you do your research and look into people like Dr. Pepper and some of the thousands of books written on JFK, Roger Stone wrote a great book. Also, some of the books on RFK and the history of Sirhan Sirhan and there is a common thread, and that common thread is indicated in my CIA bullet. I love the way you take that on both levels, the reductio absurdum of the official lone gunman, and you reduce that to the single bullet of the official story, and the single bullet which is the answer <laughs> to <laughs> the conundrum, uh, a different bullet. It's a wonderful piece, and I, uh, I do hope you'll allow me to, to use that, actually, for the, uh, the slideshow for the show. That would be great. Absolutely. You're, you're welcome to use any of my work, Julie. Thank you. Um, there was one other that I wanted to ask you. Oh yeah, it's coming back to the humour, really, the black humour. But I think it it does work extremely well. You have a couple, you probably have more actually, where your theme is, well, very much the meme that's been out there for the last few years really, where you have a, a black-clad ISIS fighter and you have the unfortunate orange-clad victim and you put these people in different situations and um, in a, on one you, ha- you have them there in a, in a studio and uh, you have a green backdrop for the superimposition of the desert or whatever the CIA studio uh, <laughs> wants to actually create and you've, you've done this kind of thing a number of times. Um, and in your experience, do people react well to that kind of black humor or do they have you come across people who are you know are upset by your saying something in that kind of way about such a subject well i have had people react most of my my fans react positively obviously but um there are people who react negatively to my work and people who just don't get it and people who threaten me and hate me and uh <laughs> i mean 
I've gotten uh, the, the gamut um, of all the same pejoratives. You know, I hate America, and I'm, I'm with the terrorists, and I'm trying to show the fact that these everything I do is about the idea that images have power. And images have power. The establishment's well aware of that. So when they keep showing you someone chopping someone's head off in a, in a news loop, there's a reason for that. They have an agenda behind that. Well, I mean, when you start to think about it, if that's ISIS propaganda, those beheading videos, and ISIS is our enemy, why will we promote our enemy's propaganda? Again, it's about looking at everything with a jaundiced eye and looking at everything um, – I mean, you have to be a bit of a cynic in this day and age, I think, or you can't understand what the, what's going on around you. You can't take anything uh, without an ironic slant on it, or you, you're going to miss the point. So everything I do is about making people think about things in a different way and, and not just accepting it, this two minutes of hate that's presented to us for what it is. And to flip it on its head, flip everything on its head just for a moment and see if that makes more sense. Excellent stuff, and uh, you do it so very well in so many, many different ways. Um, I'm delighted to have come across your work, and thank you ever so much for joining us today. Um, I would like to direct people to your website where you do display not only your political art, but you have examples of your other art as well. And I don't actually have that to hand. Could you tell us how people can reach your work that way? Uh, AnthonyFrida.com, F-R-E-D-A. Or just Google Anthony Frieda and you'll see a collection of my thought crimes. <laughs> yeah. They'll all appear. Do you know, I should have remembered that, shouldn't I? AnthonyFrieda.com, of course, <laughs> yes. I mean, do you make any of your pieces available for Creative Commons reuse as a matter of interest? Uh, some of my pieces are, are licensed, but most of my pieces are available. If you just contact me, I will give you permission. I love volunteering my services and donating my work to like-minded causes and activists who are working for peace and for liberty. And if you're one of the good guys, you're welcome to my work. Get in contact with you. Wonderful. And what are your next projects? Um, well, I'm always working with John Masseria on a variety of projects. His latest film is I Love My Crunchy, but I hate what they're doing. And uh, I'm actually working on a, um, a, a graphic novel uh, about the RFK assassination. I'm producing it with my uh, artistic partner, Dan Zollinger. And uh, I recently did a um, Dick Cheney sculpture contest uh, as a reaction to the official Dick Cheney sculpture that was put up in Washington. Yeah, so you have a Facebook page for that. I saw that. Yeah, and there was a, there yes. was a winner, wasn't there? You've yes. chosen the winner. Yes, Saul Robbins was the winner, but that contest is not dead. I still want to, I want to go down to Washington and present um, and try to have a little mock um, ceremony to present an alternative to that Dick Cheney sculpture, which is an abomination. Um, I think fifty thousand dollars in taxpayer money went to honor a war criminal, and and this this is where the other thing where you know is it incumbent upon an artist to be dedicated to something other than their own career advancement. You know, this artist who took um, that project on, uh, I mean, to me, he's complicit in creating state propaganda, trying to whitewash the crimes of Dick Cheney and present him as a, as a great American uh, hero. So these are the things I challenge. And this is, there's a war, and it's going on. It's a war of information, and it, it can be fought with images. So finally, what are your hopes, not for your own personal career, but generally for the future? You're working in the opposite direction of the, the kind of person you've just described. You're trying to deconstruct these official distortions of history. So by doing that, what are you hoping what you are doing will achieve and others like you will achieve? We have this unparalleled 
opportunity now to use media in a leveraged way to get these memes out there to get and the image has power people don't read articles but they do look at memes they do memes have power so create your own meme come up with an image come up with a clever way of challenging what you see as injustice or lies or official um, narratives that don't make sense or warmongering excuses for tyranny or whatever you see official uh, sanctioned injustice go after it go after it as an artist and be proactive and get your information out there because we can counter this war is going on online and we can do it we can get this information out there and if you come up with a meme that's powerful and compelling and funny it can get shared and seen by my good work is seen by millions of people and i'm hoping it has some effect in making them think about things in a different manner and this goes for everybody isn't it irrespective of your level of ability in the visual arts you can make some kind of statement and i would certainly recommend everybody go to your website antonyfrieda.com which i've just remembered now um, <laughs> and actually study your work because you have quite a lot there for people to learn from and see how you've done it obviously not to copy what you've done but to see what's possible and for all of us however i mean i'm very limited in my visual art ability but you know who knows i could do something learn from what you've done and uh, make our own statements in our own ways and maybe if many many of us are doing this in this digital age it will actually make a real uh, difference and wake a lot of people up to what is going on has been going on anthony frieda it has been a wonderful experience talking to you i'm delighted that you came on the show thank you ever so much for joining us it's been fantastic thank you julian it's my pleasure